My name is Christopher Pike, commander of the Space Vehicle Enterprise from a stellar group at the other end of this galaxy. Our intentions are peaceful. Can you understand me? It appears, Magistrate, that the intelligence of the specimen is shockingly limited. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the very first real episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. On every episode of Enterprise Incidents, we are going to really break down each episode of the original Star Trek, the best and still the greatest Star Trek of them all, episode by episode, and we are going to go in production order. I'm your host, Scott Mance, and I am joined by... Steve Morris, and I'm very happy to be here on the Enterprise with you, Scott. It's so exciting to be able to talk about Star Trek and and and, and talk about it on the record. So let's get right to it with the very first episode that was ever produced, but an episode that was never, ever shown until 1986 not including the two-part episode of the first season of the of the original series that it was incorporated into. But this is the show that kind of, sort of, got Star Trek sold, but maybe not really. And we're going to get into all that with the filming and our analysis of The Cage, written by Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. I mean, uh, who would have thought that Gene Roddenberry, with his background, not just his... Uh, his personal background, his occupations, but on all of the shows that he had written before would have it in him to come up with something as completely unique as Star Trek. Well, it sounds like he discovered science fiction as a young man and was reading those pulps. He's reading, you know, Asimov and all those people at the time. And it sounds like, you know, I know when you grew up and when I grew up, being a nerd was not cool. You know, no. <laughs> it's only recently. And so he, you know, he's one of us, one who said the, the secret books, but he also is this really had this really interesting life in the, in the military as a pilot. And he was in a plane crash. I mean, and then ended up coming to LA and wanted to be a writer. And they said, you know what, you need to have some experience. And it became a cop. I mean, he became what? a cop. He became a cop. But, but you know, when you look at the shows that he wrote for, uh, shows like Mr. District Attorney, Highway Patrol, uh, he wrote a bunch of episodes of Have Gun, Will Travel before he finally produced his very first series, The Lieutenant, starring Gary Lockwood, who would uh, make an appearance in the first uh, uh, sold episode of Star Trek. And we'll get to all that. You know what just occurred to me? Literally, I never had this thought before. Do you want to know what my dad's? favorite television show was what have gun will travel no kidding Ooh, yeah how about i'm that? almost certain that it was that he because that, that's paladin right mm-hmm. and he 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 that was his favorite character and it literally wasn't until you were just talking that i went wait a minute Gene Roddenberry's the head writer on that show. Like my dad was a Gene Roddenberry fan and I never ever thought about it before. You know one thing that i think a lot of people steve forget when they talk about Star Trek over these years is that back in the early 1960s, in in 1964 specifically, when Gene Roddenberry was trying to get interest in Star Trek, nothing like this had ever been done. And if science fiction had been done, it was not taken seriously, not on TV anyway, except for maybe The Twilight Zone, uh, which was an anthology series and not the same thing. But but 
nothing like Star Trek had ever been done. It was, it was unprecedented. It was uh, completely new and different, and it was a very tough sell. But, but Roddenberry, you know, he, he had this idea for this wagon train to the stars. He got the interest of, of uh, Lucille Ball, as fate would have it. Uh, Lucille Ball, who wound up being the very first Trekkie on the face of this planet uh, with her studio, Desilu. By the time they got to the end of 1964, uh, in, in, on November 27th, when they started shooting the very first episode of The Cage, the very first scene of The Cage, it was a miracle, even in, in the early 1960s, that that happened. One of the things I know we're going to talk about as we go through the show is what was going on in the world at the time these episodes were being made and released. And I went and did a look. It's like, well, Beatles for Sale came out right when they started shooting this. Yep. You know, there were there were sit-ins in Berkeley, the first summer free speech movement ones. Goldfinger comes out right when they start shooting this. Lenny Bruce was a, a, a convicted of obscenity when they started shooting it. Dr. Javago started shooting. Also, NASA launched Mariner 4 to Mars. Wow. Winston Churchill turned 90 years old. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned the Beatles. You beat me to it. Yes, December 4th, the fourth Beatles studio album, uh, Beatles for Sale, went on sale in the UK. On December 6th, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer aired for the very first time on NBC. And wow. also also on that date, Martha, Martin Luther King Jr. was presented with the Nobel Peace Prize for his civil rights movement. It's so. just an amazing time in history. And it's, and it's just, what's so weird to me is I, I associate Star Trek so much with the later 60s, but this is 64, you know, mm-hmm. and, and thinking about what we're going to get into when we get into the actual show, I honestly can't believe they made this thing. It is so far beyond anything that I could think of that was on television. I mean, it's a crazy episode of television. It, it is. It is a crazy episode of television. And, you know, the, the myth the myth that the cage was too cerebral to sell Star Trek as a series. You know, when you go back and watch the cage, like I know you did and I did for, for this episode of Enterprise Incidents that we're doing, I really tried to put myself back in that mindset of what was going on in the 60s. Because, listen, there was uh, a big gap between the early 60s and the late 60s. So much was happening in the 60s from year to year that each year to the next, it felt like a, a jump of a decade with how much change was going on, certainly with, with, with Vietnam, with civil rights, with the counterculture, uh, uh, you know, with the Cold War, with the space race. I mean, you name it, it all happened on a daily basis in the 60s. But uh, there was nothing like the cage. I mean, when you look at, at, at the, first of all, the production value, uh, watching it on high definition, which really, really looks amazing, I have to say. Uh, the production values nice. were very much there. The budget for this first episode was $452,000. And the final cost for 1964, Steve, was $616,000 for the cage, which, by the way, trivia buffs, makes the cage the most expensive episode of Star Trek, the original series ever filmed wow 
I didn't know that. That's amazing. Um, well, and I was just looking up this 1964. Two things I just thought of. One is it's literally almost exactly a year since Kennedy was assassinated, just to place this in context. But the other thing I look at, so what is the television like in 1964 when Lu Studios and Gene Roddenberry go out to make this crazy science fiction show? Here's the number one shows. Gilligan's Island, <laughs> My Favorite Martian, Man from Uncle, Bewitched, Bonanza, the Munsters and Dick Van Dyke Show. I rest my case. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and then and then like you imagine just like oh flipping over and uh, and putting and putting the cage on Star Trek the cage being like whoa like so Vina wants to have sex with Captain Pike and they could be Adam and Eve and repopulate the planet Talos Four. What? Yeah, that's pretty heavy for 1964. But the 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 other thing is that. Um, when when they filmed this episode between November twenty seventh and December eighteenth, uh, you know it was uh, the the visual effects were done by the Howard uh, Anderson Company. Uh, obviously, the writer we all know was Gene Roddenberry. The director of this episode was Robert Butler. The score was composed, of course, by Alexander Courage, who not only composed the theme. Uh, that that famous theme, which is one of the greatest TV theme songs of all time, but he also recorded the score, and he also recorded the the planet uh, atmosphere uh, mm. uh, vibrations that you hear when the landing party beams down to look for the survivors encampment. So so Alexander Courage, you know, a part of it from the very beginning, also part of it from the very beginning, all the way up until. His uh, very brief appearance in Star Trek Into Darkness in 2013 was Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy cast as Spock. You have Jeffrey Hunter as Captain Christopher Pike. Jeffrey Hunter was best known as a movie star, having uh, acted in movies like uh, The Searchers, the 1956 classic with John Wayne, and King of Kings, in which he played Jesus Christ. I mean, it's funny. He seems like one of those guys who never quite broke through to be a true movie star. And it's not that he didn't act in a couple of important films, particularly The Searchers, which is a great film, but he never quite makes it there. And today, strangely enough, the the thing he's most remembered for is the gig that he left as the captain of the Enterprise. In terms of the Enterprise, you know, Matt Jeffries created the design for the Enterprise and there were two models that they used. There was a three foot model and there was an 11 foot model. And we see the 11 foot model. It's the first thing we see after the mm-hmm. opening credits, uh, where where you hear the familiar theme song. Is the Enterprise flying by, and we do the flyover, and this is shot from the very very beginning, where you fly over and you fly in through the bridge, and you see that familiar scene that we've come to see for the next. 80 episodes uh, or 79 episodes of everyone in their place. You got the captain, you got the navigator, you got the helmsman, you got the communications and, uh, and, and we're off. We're off. I mean, that, that opening shot I think is so interesting because it's really for that time, it is really, really hard to do that kind of a composite to go from your special effects shot. And you can see if you look at the original effect, it's a little shaky as they make the transition from the the composite on the, the model into the bridge. It's still pretty cool. And this brings up a question I wanted to ask you. Are you watching the original effects or are you watching the, new, the, the redone effects? 
Well, I watch both. Um, most, most cases, I watch the redone effects because when those effects were redone back in 2007, it made me uh, uh, rediscover the show. It made me watch certain episodes in a different way. And there are certain episodes that I have to say are improved by these visual effects. Uh, one of them being Tomorrow is Yesterday, mm. you know, where they go back in time and pick up the Air Force pilot. And you know, the Doomsday Machine just looks amazing uh, with the redone effects. One episode, I got to say, Steve, where I, where I always watch the original effects is the Tholian Web from the third mm. season because those visual effects, which I think were, were Emmy nominated, uh, those effects still hold up uh, the, the ghostly image of the defiant and the, the web when the Tholians start building their web, it still looks great. But I did watch the remastered version of the cage and it looks like it could have been shot today. I think they did such a good job with those remastered effects. You know, obviously the geeks have had long, long conversations about George Lucas or whoever wanted to redo things. And in general, I approach stuff like that with a lot of trepidation. I think they really honored the original. What, what I decided to do was I'm watching it with the new effects and then I'm going back and just, going through and making sure to watch all the effects, the sequence, I'm not watching the whole show again, but I'll watch all the individual effects sequences again, just to see what it is. And it's, it's always so interesting to see how they did these effects way back in the mid sixties. When they filmed the cage and when they filmed where no man has gone before, they actually filmed on the Culver city, uh, Culver studios lot. They were not at the, at the Desilu lot Mm. yet. Obviously, you see the uniforms, you see that the uniforms look very different. The insignia looks a lot smaller, but it is the insignia. Yeah. Spock looks like Spock. He looks a little different, but he's still Spock. The first uh, line of the of Star Trek is set by Spock. Check the circuit. All operating, sir. Can't be the screen then. Definitely something out there, Captain. Headed this way. So I think that's very, very cool that Leonard Nimoy got to say the very first words ever uttered in Star Trek. That's awesome. Immediately, you just get the sense that, that you know, Pike is stiff. And then when he goes to his quarters and he calls Dr. Philip Boyce, uh, played by John Hoyt, in, you know, there's a, there's a great scene. And this is just in the first act of, of the very first episode that was ever filmed that became a fixture for so much of what we would see throughout the series, the relationship between the captain and the doctor. It's such a Dr. McCoy scene. I understand we picked up a distress signal. That's right. Unless we get anything more positive on it, it seems to me the condition of our own crew takes precedent. I'd like to lord the ship's doctor's opinion too. Oh, I concur with yours, definitely. The devil you putting in there, Ice? Who wants a warm martini? That's just classic, classic That's Star classic Trek Classic Star Trek, for sure. And the doctor comes in with the, the classic Bones thing of some people will tell things to their bartender that they won't tell to their doctor. You're already humanizing these people. You're already showing, showing character. You're showing depth. You're showing relatability. Uh, that, that even though this is, a, this is obviously taking place in the future, but you know people are still people. That scene, the the doctor bartender scene between Pike and Boyce uh, is very, very familiar when you're watching Star Trek Beyond and you're seeing the scene on Kirk's birthday between Kirk and McCoy. Uh, They're having the same conversation about, I don't want to be the captain anymore. So 
here you have from your very first episode, your captain, your skipper, the guy's in charge, the guy you're supposed to like follow into a burning volcano. Okay. And he doesn't want to be the captain anymore. So, and the thing that I find so interesting is, is Pike lays out his fantasies, you know, back home with the horses, having a picnic. And then he even says, all right, I could do something totally different. Like going to business on regulars or on the Orion column. You, an Orion trader dealing in green animal women slaves. The point is that this isn't the only life available. Immediately, you have a very different dynamic from the one that you see with Kirk, where Kirk was definitely feeling the burden sometimes, but... I don't know. You're watching Shatner. He loved being captain of the Enterprise, you know, and he he to the to 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 his dying day, he he knew that his place was on the bridge of the Enterprise. I I, I think that's one of the big mistakes of this episode, and that's why I say it's like I don't think Jeffrey Hunter acted it badly, but starting off, I mean, the first thing, the very first captain decision he makes is we get a distress signal, and he says. No, nah, we're too tired. We're wounded. <laughs> and yeah. right, so right there, he's deciding not to act. And then we hear that there was some big, crazy adventure thing that happened where crew members died and people are injured. And he tells this thing about, Oh, I should have smelled trouble when I saw the swords and the armor. Instead of that, I let myself get trapped in that deserted fortress and attacked by one of their warriors. Chris, you set standards for yourself no one could meet. Wow, that sounds really exciting. I would sure like to see a show like that. I, you but- will. <laughs> In that conversation, in, a, in some ways, just go with me on this, it's like the breakfast table conversation in Back to the Future. The yes, reason that's exactly what it is. Yes. Right? Because you are hearing something that happened and you're hearing a fantasy. Like in Back to the Future, everything that you hear about in that breakfast conversation, you, you see that play out for the rest of the movie. Well, everything that Pike is talking about with Dr. Boyce, whether it's the battle that happened with the warrior or being a, an Orion slave trader or being back on the farm with his horse, it's all set up because it all plays out, but it doesn't play out like you would ever imagine it was going to play out. But it's a, it's a great setup and a testament to Gene Roddenberry's talent as a screenwriter that he structured his his story in that way that everything pay attention folks because everything we're talking about now it's going to pay off for the rest of this episode mr spock here we're intercepting a follow-up message sir there are crash survivors on telus so the interesting thing is that they spent all this money building an 11 foot model of the enterprise and a three foot model of the enterprise and when they get to talus four you don't see the enterprise in orbit around the planet you, you know, like in every episode of the original series, you had that familiar shot of the Enterprise coming towards you, uh, going to the right, and then coming like over your shoulder as it moves from uh, left to right across the screen around the planet. But they never, sh- they showed the Enterprise approach Talos 4, but you only saw it on the view screen. Like all that money that they spent on that model, and you never see the Enterprise actually orbit Talos 4. But, and what you have sitting in the helmsman chair is something that when it's addressed in this episode dates the episode it's sort of a cringe inducing moment uh especially by today's standards because captain pike does not like having a woman on the bridge i get used to having a woman on the bridge it's so interesting um because 
you know, it's, it's Majel Barrett, who obviously is a huge, huge part of Star Trek forever, mm-hmm. is that on the one hand, they made this crazy choice, which is that she, you have a woman as the first officer, not Mr. Spock is not the first officer. In this case, you have a woman. And that is incredibly brave and is goes with things that we're going to see from Gene Roddenberry going forward is things that weren't on television is this ideas of, you know, including different people from different backgrounds into, into the show. And that's amazing. But then they also immediately hit it with this sexist thing of I'm not used to women on the, so he undercuts the, the, the whole choice that he's trying to make. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and listen, the fact that, that again, that Gene Roddenberry had a woman in a position of power on a, a, an immense vessel, which, for that time had 203 crew members aboard, not 428 like Kirk's did. Uh, But that was a very, very big swing. And it was something that he had to compromise on moving forward when it went to series uh, because the networks, the network, you know, the network rather NBC didn't like having a woman on the bridge and having this guy with the pointed ears. So one of them had to go. So he married one and he, <laughs> and he kept the other. <laughs> so, yeah. Can you imagine if he did it the other way and married <laughs> Nimoy? <laughs> and it seems like what they were trying to do is that, number one, that character had sort of the cold logic elements of what would become the Spock character. Mm-hmm. But they do this, they have this moment where after he's talking about not having women on the bridge and he looks at number one and says, well, I don't really think of you as a woman. And there's just this reaction from her of like, oh, and so and and what's interesting about it is I can't think of a show at that time that had these kinds of tensions, gender related tensions, whether or not she's attracted to him, which is things we're going to get into later. Mm -hmm. You know, like I don't think there were shows that operated like that. But I also got to say, I I also got to say that Majel Barrett, okay. Uh, you know, when throughout the the original series, you know, her she had some good moments as Nurse Chapel, like in Naked Time uh, and uh, A Private Little War. Mm-hmm. Uh, but her performance in the cage is stellar. I thought that she was fantastic. I believed her in that role. I thought that she crushed it. Uh, the points that you make about some of the traits that number one would eventually transfer to Spock, but I think. That Majel Barrett's performance as number one was was really, really, really good. And I also like the scene on the bridge where they're saying, okay, we're going to beam down to the planet. And uh, Pike looks around and he says, do you feel up to it? And Spock goes, yes, sir. And then Jose Tyler, the navigator, goes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Jose Tyler uh, is a character, the, the navigator, Lieutenant Jose Tyler, played by uh, Peter Duryea. I find, I kind of look at this character because he clearly is a character who really looks up to Captain Pike. Like this is like a father figure to him. This is something that in some ways we would see Chekhov uh, play out with right. Kirk. Okay. And it's something that, that made me, you know, and rewatching this episode, which I've seen, I swear to God, a couple hundred times now, but rewatching it with the mindset, knowing that I was going to be talking about it with you, on the same level, my friend, um, I actually thought about Tyler as sort of the Wesley Crusher yes. of Pike's Enterprise because he's a young guy. I mean, he's he's got to be like in his maybe early, super early 20s. That in some ways, uh, Pike is more like Picard than yes, Kirk. Yes, I agree. Well, it, that's what's so interesting to me is that 
there are all these threads, the number one relationship, the appearance of the yeoman on the bridge, this young character, the development of Spock, where you're, the relationship with the doctor, you're like, oh, this is an interesting show. Yeah. It's not the show that I think you and I both love, you know, but it is an interesting show. Yeah. You know, when I, when I think about that moment, that moment that I ran in to find my buddy uh, after he dropped the wiffle ball bat, like, what if, what if he was sitting in front of the cage? Would I have been just as transfixed? Probably. Yeah. The answer is uh, I'm, I'm guessing that I would have, uh, but like, like mirror mirror was such a, was such a, like a, it's one of the best episodes ever, not just of the original series, but it's one of the greatest Star Trek episodes of all time. And that was the episode I caught. What if I had caught the cage? What if I caught Captain Pike instead of Captain Kirk? Would I have been just as drawn? Would I have, would I have, would I have immediately looked up to the heroic qualities of Kirk at, in the same way, uh, just by, by looking at Pike? I don't know that. My wife, could have been completely different if well, I was this, not uh, if I was not transfixed by seeing the cage. Well, th- this is the thing, and of course, it's a great thing to speculate on. Is that the first thing is it probably wouldn't have been on TV because it wouldn't have had the following that forced it to go into syndication and the conventions and all the things that kept Star Trek alive. That's the first thing, and the second thing I think is I think you and I would both totally watch it because. There wasn't anything else. There was no science fiction. But I don't think you and I would be here today. Wow, that's that's absolutely true. But so so after they uh, decide they're they're going to go down to Talos Four, so now you have a scene in a room with a device <laughs> that was originally conceived as a as a money saving uh, way to prevent. Very, very expensive visual effects shots of the Enterprise landing on a planet from week to week. The transporter room. Now, this may have been a cost-cutting measure uh, to incorporate as a plot point, but the transporter, like, like what an imagination to come up with something like that, to transferring your body to ma- uh, energy and, and, and shooting it down to a planet and then reorganizing the matter. I, I, the transported device became such a plot point for some of the very, very best episodes of the original series and beyond. But particularly when they were uh, trying to beam off, uh, when they were trying to beam Kirk off of the uh, constellation, and uh, the, the transporter was malfunctioning, and there was a countdown before the constellation got eaten up by the planet killer, and it's a countdown, gentlemen. I suggest you be me aboard. But the <laughs> transporter room, like, can you imagine again? Can you imagine the brass at NBC sitting, watching this and being like, whoa, I mean, they may not have been completely in love with the episode, but what a what an amazing device to incorporate into the Enterprise. I think it might be among the best examples of turning a weakness into a strength of anything I can think of. The, the one the other one that pops to mind is the shark not working in Jaws. The shark not working in Jaws is one of the things that made that movie great because Spielberg had to be creative in all these other ways because he couldn't do what he really wanted to do. And here they go, man, we really wish we could have a ship and landing and take off, but we can't do that. And they come up with a thing that is so much cooler. And I think about those guys at NBC watching it and I'm going like, I don't think they were geeks. You know what I mean? So like, I think they watched that and went, Hmm, that is interesting. Whereas us as kids are going, Oh my God, did you see that as the coolest thing ever? 
and and the 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 matting effect i mean the mm-hmm. sound effect of the transporter was very very different and the one that they actually gravitated towards uh from war no man's gone before onwards uh i just i mean i think it's a great sound effect but by the time you get to to the transporter and by the time you get to the planet i think when you're watching the cage for the first time you really see the influence on star trek of the feature film forbidden planet yes there's there's so much uh about about uh, about star trek about how it how it inspired so much but i can't think of another another book another show another movie that had a direct impact on the inspiration of star trek then forbidden planet even leslie nielsen uh is very much like a cross between pike and kirk uh, especially when it came to his uh, his appreciation of of, of women, um, but the, the that absolutely absolutely that movie had a big influence and a big impact on Star Trek. You watch, I feel like when I watch uh, Forbidden Planet now, next to Galaxy Quest, Forbidden Planet is the best episode of Star Trek that was never made. <laughs> yeah, I to- I, I totally agree. I mean, well, and this is the thing. People people think that ideas spring fully formed into creators' minds, and they don't. They're influenced by all this stuff. Well, and the other thing that I think, in, in the same way, is that we get to see something from Leonard Nimoy in this scene as soon as they get down on the planet uh-huh. that we never see really in this way again, which is a big freaking smile. A big you know? smile. But also, it's, let's make a point that out, because when they beam down to the planet, first of all, that, that map painting behind them, which they would reuse for for uh, uh, Delta Vega and where no mm. man has gone before. The production design of this episode of this pilot, again, this is 1964, and this the, the imagination. Okay, to have the planet vibrations, the the humming of the atmosphere, to make it feel like an alien world. I loved those alien planet sounds. I wish that they would make a CD that just had those sounds. And I would play that on a constant loop all day long when I was home working. So I would feel like I was on a Star Trek planet. I, I don't know why they never used them on the, the later shows like Next Gen or, or you know Voyager or Enterprise, but I love hearing those sounds. And uh, But, but it's, it's caused by these plants. And when, when Pike walks over to one of the plants and you see Spock walk over to him, he's he's limping i saw that too so tell me what happened well remember is that they were talking about this this battle that had happened on rival seven that people got killed people got injured spock uh he was wearing a a a bandage and he was limping so he was a casualty i mean he didn't die but a lot of people a lot of people said over the years like why is leonard nimoy limping in that scene and it's not it's it's spock who's limping they're trying to establish the wear and tear of space travel on the crew of the Enterprise. And I think that from, from Act 1, Scene 1, they really, really did a great job of doing that. Okay, so this already the podcast is worth it because I didn't know that. I never connected <laughs> it before. But here, but here's the thing where I'll, I'll actually disagree a little bit is I don't think that works. And the reason it doesn't work is just for what you just said. Is And I went and went, wait, is Leonard Nimoy injured? Was he injured before he shot this? Is they didn't, they're not actually on screen connecting it 
to whatever happened in the previous adventure. Like if they, they need to do, and it's funny, it's the old uh, Hollywood term of hang a lantern on it, is that you need to have someone know this. So you've got to shine a light on it in some way. Have Pike say, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see you're up and around, Mr. Spock. Well, then we would know that he had just been injured or something, but we don't but, really have that. But Steve, he did say before they beamed down while they're still on the bridge, do you feel up to it? And he goes, yes, sir. Uh, see, but, see. But, but it doesn't, but I'll say it again. It doesn't work because if I watched that, like you, I've watched the cage many, many times, not nearly as many as the menagerie, but I've watched it many times and I hadn't had that thought until now they failed. I will well, say that they failed in that case. I, I understand your point because it took, it took many, many years for me to, to, to draw that correlation. Like, cause I, I often wondered uh, over, over the years, over the decades, I have to admit, uh, why is Leonard Nimoy? limping here maybe maybe he actually was limping but no it was it was a character it was a choice that he made because they were coming off of a, of a previous adventure that uh but they see the survivors encampment and uh they they get a it, it's a moment of positivity that these people have survived all this time and then we all get our first look at vena played by the the legend susan oliver uh, who has uh, just been a fixture in TV and film for for many 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 years, and uh, she is a lot younger than the other people in the encampment, and she should not. Uh, there was a Vena, as we learn, on that expedition, but she was not that young. But Susan Oliver is uh, her performance is also great. You know, you got to look at the range of that character uh, uh, that we see throughout the episode. Uh, from her acting out a scene to being in the cage with Pike to that final moment when we see Vina for who she really is. And again, another actress I don't think gets the credit that she deserves for her performance. I think she's totally great. It was funny. I was doing a little research and I don't know if you saw this, but uh, she's in all sorts of television. But what what I didn't know was at one point she was engaged to Sandy Koufax. Oh, I did not know that. Wow, there you go. This podcast just, uh, you know, uh, did it for me too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she yeah, and she's great. Although I will say that as she talks to him, when I beam down to a planet, if someone comes up and looks at me strangely and goes, You appear to be healthy and intelligent, Captain. Prime specimen. I'd be like, all right, this is a little weird. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't follow this girl. Yeah. But she says, everything will become clear to you, you know? She's pretty creepy. But when we get to that point when when Vina uh, escorts Pike to, you know, uh, the secret that she wants to show him. I don't understand. You will. You're a perfect choice. That's a a moment when we really get our first big action scene Mm -hmm. in a Star Trek episode ever filmed. For the studio brass that felt like there wasn't enough action in the cage maybe because the episode actually clocked in at more than an hour, maybe the ratio of action to rest of the episode is not very high, but this is a, a well-staged scene where Pike is kidnapped by the Telosians and the Enterprise crew with their phasers uh, or lasers try to uh, blast the top of the hill so they can save him, but to no avail. 
So a cu- couple things about this. First thing is, I have no idea why these Talosians come out and have to like shoot him and then they have to drag him. And it's like, <laughs> they never do anything like, they have these massive illusion powers. It seemed to me that they would do something different, but whatever. The, and then, but one other thing I'll say is, you know, we're saying like, there's all these great ideas in the show. I love those lasers. I love that you turn it to change. It's very obvious, really beautiful design that you're changing the intensity by turning it. It's not that I don't like the phaser designs. Obviously, they're classic Star Trek designs, but I think these things are really cool. And just as like the communicators, like a little bigger, a little more mechanical looking. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a really cool design too, um, but it's not designs that went forward. Yeah, interesting. You brought you brought up the phaser and the communicator. The communicator, like you see the insides of it, you see the mechanism of it. You don't see that in the uh, yeah. communicators that they used from the original series onwards, uh, which just looks like a flip phone, um, or the flip phone looks like a communicator. But uh, I, I like that used look of the Enterprise, of the devices, of the tricorder, of the of the the phaser, like where you see later in the episode or, or in the, in that fight scene, when you see them turn the knob yeah. to increase the force of the blast so they can, they can, you know, blow off the, the door and get to Captain Pike. This is a cliffhanger, the end of a, of an act. Spock here. Landing party, come in. There is no survivors encampment, number one. This is all some sort of trap. When we go to the next act, we are beneath the surface of Talos four and Pike comes to he is behind a glass uh something that's definitely much much stronger than glass that he cannot break out of and he looks and he sees other he realizes he's in a a cell he's in a cage and they cut this they cut this particular part out of the menagerie when they incorporated it but i like that they you know you see pike he looks over one cage and he sees like a almost like a an ape or a gorilla type of alien. And then he looks to another cage and he sees something that looks like a giant bird man, but it's not quite clear. And the, the way that the, the, the image is altered gives it an, a real otherworldly feel. And at this moment, like you really get the sense that the galaxy is made up of all shapes and sizes of all types. And they're the, they really did. The Telosians really did get, uh, species and beings from all over the galaxy, just like Dina said. Well, and it's so it's so interesting because, as I said, I watched the Menagerie as much as I watched every other episode of Star Trek. I never saw this until the late '80s, and even then, I didn't go back and watch the Cage as much. So when things that are show up that aren't in the menagerie it just pops out. And this, and what I think is so great about this is it's really like, oh, he's in a zoo. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's storytelling is really, really clear. Let me ask you this. Yeah. What do you think of the design of the Telosians of our aliens? Uh, I got to tell you, I'm glad you asked because I think the design of those aliens with those giant heads, with those giant brains that you see pulsing when they are thinking or trying to project a, an illusion for 1964, that makeup is fantastic. I that, think so too. I, I, every time I watch an episode, I'm trying to look, you know, to try and see, you know, to try and see the fakeness of it, to try and, oh, that's where the makeup ends and the actual flesh begins. But Fred Phillips, who did the makeup for Star Trek and who, by the way, did in fact design Spock's ears. A lot of people say oh, it, was, it was John Chambers who did the apes from Planet of the Apes. 
but Leonard Nimoy said for the record that it was Fred Phillips who designed the ears. Fred Phillips makeup on Star Trek throughout the series for this mid to late sixties is a, an outstanding, an outstanding legacy just on that show alone. I love the Telosians. They look like aliens. I, I think they're among the coolest aliens ever in the original series. I think they're great. And I think the choice to cast them as, with women to create this strange androgyny within the characters and to use different voices that aren't the voices of the people, because I think that's they're not the voices of the people actually acting the parts. They dubbed in other voices, creates this sort of weird otherworldliness to them. Mm-hmm. I think they're great. Yeah, I, and I agree. I think that the fact that you have... Uh, you know, who knows if the Telosians are men or women or if they're just sort of like, you know, uh, genderless, genderless. Yeah. yeah. But the fact that you have the voices overdub with other actors, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the wardrobe, Bill Tice, William Ware Tice, who designed the wardrobe for Star Trek, uh, the, the makeup, the, the, uh, everything clearly no expense was uh, shortchanged to make this Star Trek pilot look the best it could possibly be. And the fact that it holds up, here we are talking about it in 2021, and we are still impressed by it, uh, just shows you how far they went and how effective it was. Well, and I want to point out one other thing, which is that, you know, when, whenever you come up with a new show, and particularly if you come up with a new world, there's, it's incumbent upon you to kind of go, well, how does this world work and figure out the stuff? Well, so far in this episode, we've had communicators, we've had view screens, we've talked about time warp speed or the, something like that. It's not exactly warp speed. We've had um, laser beams, we've had people, we've had the transporter, and now we have these crazy aliens and we have telepathy and we're about to have illusions that's so many ideas that is packed into this pilot absolutely and you know when you when you talk about the you know it wasn't it wasn't quite called warp speed they called it hyperdrive all decks prepare for hyperdrive uh and then you know it became it became warp speed yeah when they go into hyperdrive they do the weirdest effect at the beginning of this show, which is they do this weird half dissolved superimposition back and forth from the ship. And we see Pike talking to the navigator and they're doing hand gestures. And it is, it totally doesn't work. I think it is, it's like one of those ideas that seemed really cool and is not cool. And I'm so glad it never makes it into the show. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I'm glad that they took that out of the menagerie when they did it. But I think that they were trying to go for something kind of like what yeah. they did in Forbidden Planet when they went to, you know, mm. hyperspace. And, uh, you know, you had uh, the, the, the crew had to get in these pods so that they could be protected while they went to hyperspace. And uh, I think ultimately <laughs> when you see in, in later episodes, when you see the Enterprise going like warp nine and you just see it go, you know, whoosh, <laughs> you yeah. know, that's that's all you need. My name is Christopher Pike, commander of the space vehicle Enterprise from a stellar group at the other end of this galaxy. Can you understand me? It appears, Magistrate, that the intelligence of the specimen is shockingly limited. It's humiliating the way they are studying him. His dignity is being stripped the way they are looking at him like a specimen. You will note the confusion as it reads our thought transmissions. All right, then telepathy. And again, this is 1964. This is science fiction. This is this is supposed to be an action adventure, entertaining series. This is kind of uncomfortable in some ways if you put yourself in that mind frame. Well, the most the most disturbing element is is they start 
They're reading his mind and predicting, oh, now you're feeling this. Now you're feeling this. You'll now see the primitive fear threat reaction. The specimen is about to boast of his strength, the weaponry of his vessel. Next, frustrated into a need to display physical prowess, the creature will throw himself against the transparency. You see Pike start to do it and then stop yeah. because, yeah, yeah. because the guy knew he was going to do it. You're right. This is humiliating. Well, when they say, when the Telosian says uh, we can soon uh, uh, begin the experimentation and everything, uh, that the look of horror on uh, Pike's face. Uh, but then they cut back to the Enterprise. And you're, you're, you're in a scene that would become very, very, very familiar throughout the run of this show, the briefing room. Our tests indicate the planet's surface without considerably more vegetation or some animals, simply too barren to support life. So we just thought we saw survivors there. Uh, you have Spock, you have Yeoman Colt, you have Number One, you have uh, Lieutenant Tyler. This scene feels like Star Trek to me. Totally. It totally does. The one thing I find funny about it is uh, that the doctor appears to know a lot about these aliens. He's like, the inhabitants of this planet can read our minds. They can create illusions out of a person's own thoughts, memories and experiences, even out of a person's own desires. It's like, man, doc, you figured out a lot of stuff about these guys. You know, they're all brainstorming. You know, uh, Spock says if we start buzzing about down there, they're liable to reach out and swat the ship as though it were a fly. Uh, but then they decide to bring one of the ship's phasers down to the planet to uh, uh, blow off the top of the of the hill and, you know, which it, which it should do in the first second as number one says later in the episode. But when we go I back... Love, down, by the way, I love that idea of the, of the giant cannon they could bring down. It's another really cool idea that we never see in Star Trek again. Thousands of us are already probing the creature's thoughts, Magistrate. We find excellent memory capacity. I read most strongly a recent death struggle in which it fought to protect its life. We will begin with this. And then we see the Telosians use their power of illusion to bring Pike back to a moment that we only just heard about, but now we see. This is Rigel Seven. Where he was just recently in the this castle with this warrior starting just as it happened two weeks ago but this time it's different except for you this time vena is there and they have given captain pike something very valuable to protect and this is what the telosians are getting off on because they are they are living their lives through through pike's illusion with vena but this is a great action scene. This is a uh, an action scene that you know Kirk would have been right at home doing. He probably would have ripped his shirt in the process. But but uh, you know the the uh, score composed by Alexander Courage during the scene, the fight uh, that Pike has to do, that Christopher uh, Jeffrey Hunter has to do uh, while protecting Susan Oliver, Vina. Uh, it's a it's a great scene, and it's a it's a pretty bad ending for the warrior. <laughs> so. So you and I agree on so much and our love for Star Trek. And I know we're going to agree 97% of the time. I don't think this is a great scene. <laughs> I really, I did when I was a kid, but watching it now, this is not a, it's just not a good fight scene, even by 60 standards. Kirk has way, way better fight scenes later oh, on. Oh, absolutely. And, watch, yeah. and, and, and watching it like this, the, it's like, I'm watching going, why does this giant 
alien guy live in a castle that's too small for him you know like there's so many <laughs> weird things in it and it's so slow and yeah I, yeah the fight and I, and it's so funny because i'm sure i loved it but then watching it now i just kind of was like okay this well, it, this thing does not hold up for me but when he first materializes so to speak on rigel seven and he's looking around and you see the matte painting of Rigel Seven with the star and the the water, you know, gleaming off the water and the big mm. the big castle. That is beautiful. It is beautiful. I they, agree. They reused that. Uh, they reused that castle painting uh, in the third season episode, Requiem for Methuselah. Like like we wouldn't remember it. Are you kidding me? But <laughs> but the score that kicks in at that time, I love you know, it. It's such a an elegant, otherworldly transformative type of score with this uh with this woman uh singing they reused that score many times throughout the series like when spock got infected infected by the spores and uh this side of paradise but i just think it's a great moment uh and i like i like it better than you <laughs> yeah i mean and i can't say enough about alex alexander courage's not the main just the main thing but so many of these and they do use them over and over again and they're great great pieces of of movie score when the fight is is over and they're back in Pike's cage and Vina uh, looks, uh, well, I, I would say more like herself, but she's not herself yet, uh, wearing that very uh, uh, metallic miniskirt. Silver, yeah. Yeah, silvery miniskirt. And uh, she hugs him. It's over. It's over. And then she realizes that they're being watched and she takes her hands off of him. It's pretty risque, again, for that time. Well, that's the thing that kept hitting me this time watching it. I don't think this this episode of television is just pretty risque. I think it's really risque. In fact, I really wonder, you know, the thing we always heard is this show was too cerebral. But I think this this show might have been just too sexual. I mean, there is so much stuff related to sex and sexual desire in this thing. And this is where, and and a couple of things about this scene I find interesting. This is the scene where we find out that they have this huge war. And then we have this idea that developing these mental problems where they could have these fantasies was a trap because then they stopped living in the real world and they kind of give up on life. And and the the reason I want to point this out, this is one of the classic Star Trek themes, Mm. the theme between the life that never changes and struggling and fighting and battling. And we're going to see that in, you know, so return of the archons and this side of paradise and the apple and all these episodes where it's stasis versus action. And in fact, that scene with the doctor, what are we talking about? Do I go out and live the adventurous life or do I go and do something more passive and boring, you know? And right now we're saying, if you live in this world of your mind and aren't out there really doing stuff, then civilization falls apart. Well, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's uh, that I I think uh, Star Trek is at its best when it, when it challenges you, when it forces you to think about those things, when it looks ahead and in such a way where we're still catching up to Star Trek's time, certainly, but, you know, the themes are still relevant. And that is something that, I mean, certainly, you know, we're not using power of illusion, but, you know, we are relying on technology, especially with smartphones and social media, uh, in such a way that uh, that could happen, you know, where you do just become lazy. I remember... I remember there was an episode of the Super Friends that dealt with the same thing. Um, but the, the, well, I think about the fact that, like my my grandfather, he could do all the stuff, whether it was 
fix the plumbing or the electricity or carpentry, you know, all that stuff. And my dad could do a bunch of that stuff and I could do less of it. And my son can do none of it. When I left my son, who's nine years old to come record this episode, you know, want to know what he was doing? What? VR. He was on an Oculus quest in the VR world. Mm. Like his world is so much more virtual than my grandfather's world or the world of 1964 compared to where, like, what are you and I doing right now? Are we in the same room? No, mm. we're on a Zoom call. We're yeah. having a virtual conversation right now. Like our, I think these themes are becoming even more important today than they were back in 1964. Well, like, like when, when you have uh, uh, on the enterprise, when they have the view screen, they're Zooming, they're using Skype. Yeah. So- Hey, we're just catching a, up with them. That's <laughs> another one. I mean, think of all the ideas that are in this very first episode. It's amazing. It really, really is. Well, and at the end of the scene, when, you know, because we come up with this idea that they're like Adam and Eve, and then she's not winning and she screams, please don't punish me. <laughs> and then she disappears and leaves her dress behind. So a couple things about this that I find interesting. The first is another thing that's going on is the long-term torture of this person. Mm. I mean, it is, this is because please don't punish me screams and disappears. We don't know what's happened to Vina. How it's been, how long has it been 18 years they've yep, been on the right. planet, mm -hmm. but it's been pretty darn terrible. The other thing, just in terms of how the Telosians work what happened to Vina? Because what we see before is that when we think that the food just appeared, actually there was just this hole that was open in the wall and someone reached in and puts the food there. Why does Vina disappear? Is she still just sitting there in the room, but she's invisible and Pike can't see her? And why does it leave the dress behind? Or, or is the illusion that she was taken away and that she's still there. That's what I'm saying. She might still yeah, be there. She might still be there, right. That's all, that's, you know, they're really messing with Pike's mind for sure. Yeah. We get to the scene where- Take cover. We see the the power of of this society of the future. Not, we don't know that it's called the Federation. We don't know that it's Starfleet yet, but uh, they bring down the phaser cannon from the Enterprise. And again, another action scene, very well done, visual effects for 1964, I got to say. And that thing just should have knocked off the top of that hill, like, like you know, in a heartbeat. It's just like, uh, like the doctor says, you know, their power of illusion is so strong, we can't be sure of anything we do or anything we see. Um, one of the things that's interesting is, is he's debating whether or not he's going to drink the stuff. And the Telosian says, oh, we can make it taste like anything you want. And this is where he discovers that if he gets really angry, they, they, that kind of freaks him out and they can't deal with it. But then they say, you overlook the unpleasant alternative of punishment. And then he screams. And this freaked me out so much as a kid. I He's screaming and he's like surrounded by fire. And the thing that made it so freaky is that he's also wet. The decision to make him wet, it just gives me this sense like his flesh is melting or something. Mm -hmm. It really scared me. He's you know? uh, in hell. In he's hell. in hell. Yeah. 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 From a fable you once heard from childhood. Yeah. 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 And so, so like this idea, again, this is a show about torture. And now we've watched our main character. I mean, he is totally, totally helpless. The situation that he is in is a terrible one. And then, of course, we go from there to this lovely picnic. 
again, we're, we're taken back to something we heard near the top of the episode. And now we are seeing when Pike was talking to Boyce about going home and being on his farm with his horse. Uh, now we're seeing that. We're seeing Tango. Tango? You devil, you. Now Vina just looks like a real uh, a wholesome uh, yeah. woman. They're on this picnic. And she says, you're home. You can even stay if you want. You wanted, you wanted to go home. Now you can stay. But we're not here, neither of us. We're in a menagerie, a cave. Oh. The other thing that's going on that's weird in the picnic is that he's, she's talking as an actress, essentially, in this world. I hope you're hungry. These little white sandwiches are your mother's recipe for chicken tuna. And she's trying to maintain that. And he's going, well, what about the Telosians? And is it true they can't read through negative emotions? And I, she goes, Have you forgotten my headaches, darling? I get them when you talk strangely like this. <laughs> she's like giving him a clue of, please just play the role. Because if you don't play the role, I'm going to get tortured. That's what this scene is about. And literally, she might actually be developing a headache because they are actually torturing her at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, this is the scene where, again, it's this theme that started with the doctor of, do we live in the tough world or do we not? And he's starting to go. Because you either live like bruises, skin, knees and all, or you turn your back on it and start dying. And you know what I, I I had that thought of? Get busy living or get busy dying. You know, it's like Shawshank. That's that same theme. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, yeah. and, and because of it, it's like, where are we? We're actually in prison, even if the prison is pleasant. And that is the, the basic idea that this movie, the show is presenting is, would you stay in prison if it was pleasant? If you could have everything you want. And I think about... Um, Joe Pantaleone in The Matrix, where he says, you know, send me back into The Matrix. That's where we are. We're going to be in The Matrix, essentially. Send me back in, but I don't want to know, and I want to have the best food and the best money and the best women and the best life. And I, as long as I don't know I'm in The Matrix, that's better. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting question. Well, I think uh, I think it obviously, you know, because you brought up The Matrix, it, it's a theme that is still is still worthy of, of examining in different ways. And if you just take the easy way out and just live the life of an illusion that you're not really living at all. And, and, you know, uh, uh, in later, it, it's, it's something in later episodes, you know, you, you, you know, like when in who mourns for Adonis, when Apollo is giving Kirk and the crew of the enterprise, the chance to live in this paradise. And he's saying, we've outgrown you, yeah. you know, we need, we need the challenge. Like when the companion offers exactly. uh, Kirk Spock McCoy and Zephyr Cochran uh, eternal or and and if not not the Nancy Hedford eternal life uh, they're saying no we, we you take away we need these obstacles we need challenges to survive we need cha- we need this to to live uh, and that's a, that's a theme that has been explored many many times in Star Trek one of the things that I think you and I both love about Star Trek is we return to these ideas and I'm forced to continue to think about them. Even though I know clearly Star Trek has a, no, we must strive forward thing. Part of me in some of these situations, I don't want to be on, I don't want to be hanging out with Landrew. That doesn't seem like a great world, but in some of these places, I'm kind of like, you know, that, that was kind of nice, you know, (laughs) you know, this side of paradise, like eh, not so bad. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing that happens, and this is what's really interesting the Telosians are reading his mind and seeing him reject this particular fantasy. 
It's not exciting enough. And then she is clearly in some sort of telepathic connection with the Telosians. But then Vina becomes, this is interesting. This always like kind of scared me a little about Vina when I was younger, the way she like changes her tune, the way she becomes more sinister. Yes, a ship's captain. Always having to be so formal, so decent and honest and proper. You must wonder what it would be like to forget all that. Then you're on, you know, the planet where he's running the club and, you know, handling the Orion, Orion slave girls. And now we see Vina covered in makeup from Fred Phillips with a black wig in that famous music. Which we heard in uh, later on in Wolf of the Fold. Like now he's in this other situation that we heard him reference at the top of that conversation with Boyce. And he doesn't want that either. So uh, in some ways, the being held captive by the Telosians was the best thing. It kind of snapped him out of his funk. And this is why I think the Orion slave girl sequence is like really fascinating is that she figures out that what he really fantasizes about is being irresponsible. And what's interesting about this is this is a show about fantasies. A curious species. They have fantasies they hide even from themselves. And then we go to the green slave girl, and one of the kind of scummy guys says, Funny how they are on this planet. Actually like being taken advantage of. (laughs) That line is really messed up. It is because what they're saying, and you know, this is, we're going to do a very wholesome show, but what they're essentially talking about is rape fantasy. Mm-hmm. You know, they're saying taking this, this, this green slave woman actually likes being taken by force in some way. And what that means that they're saying is that they're saying Christopher Pike, the main character in our show, the captain we're going to follow through adventures through the galaxy has these really messed up sexual fantasies. Mm-hmm. That's what this show is saying. That's why I kind of go like when they said, oh, this the cage is too cerebral. I'm kind of going, man, there's some, and that line is not, I'm a, mostly sure that line is not in the menagerie. Oh, it's not. No, you're yeah. right. It is not is, in the menagerie. Is that they pull back on the sort of deviant sexual nature of, of what is, and, I, and I'm going like on the other channel was Gilligan's Island and Bonanza, <laughs> you know, Haas and, and, and little, what is it? Little Joe. Is that his name? Little Bill, um, little Joe, little, whatever name is, whatever yeah, the, yeah. the the character's name, Michael Landon was not, yes, they were going and meeting a girl when they went down to, um, what's the city? I can, I can, I watched I a lot watched of Bonanza. I, can, I watched a ton of it back in the day, but I cannot remember. Anyway. Yeah. They would have a relationship with a girl, but they didn't have secret slave girl fantasies. Like <laughs> this is 1964. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good, it's a great point. I mean, to say that it was too cerebral, this discussion is making me see that cerebral was the least of the problems that they had with the, with the cage, you know, that where no man has gone before kind of dialed back on some of the things, but that, that had uh, other ideas of its There's own. There's all and, sorts of interesting stuff in that show. It's yeah. just not this stuff. Mm-hmm, exactly. We're hoping to transport down inside the Telosian community. If our measurements and readings are an illusion also, one could find oneself materialized inside solid rock. Nothing will be said if any volunteer wants to back out. The landing party, including Spock and Colt and number one, are on the transporter platform, but only the women being down, number one and Yeoman Colt. The women! Because now 
Pike has the pick of the litter to start carefully guided lives. Again, like we have talked about so many times, risque stuff going on here. And of course, now the Telosians are reading the women's minds and saying, and I remember, I just so remember as a kid, and maybe because I was, you know, going through puberty or watching this, it's like that yeoman cult has unusually strong female drives. And I didn't know what that meant when I was 11 or 12 watching this show. And she's but, embarrassed. You know, she's like, she's embarrassed, up, like, humiliated. Well, and then they even say that, you know, Pike has always thought that she was that number one is cold and remote, but she's actually been secretly fantasizing about you, dude. And I'm sitting there going, man, this is the pilot of our show. We're establishing all these attractions and sexual tensions for our main characters going on again, 1964. You know, it's and crazy. I, and, I, and I like how Vina is like jealous. You know, he doesn't need you. He's already picked me. Picked her? For what? I don't understand. Now there's a fine choice for intelligent offspring. Offspring? As in children? Offspring as in he's Adam. Back on the Enterprise, when all this terrible stuff has happened, so where Spock says, let's leave. We're leaving. Wow. That yeah, is well, different from later on. But then they can't because the Telosians have now pulled a move. And this is not something that we see in the cut version uh, during the menagerie, where the Telosians have effectively commandeered their way to manipulate the Enterprise. And you see them uh, manipulating the computers and you see them going through ship's records in a way that looked very much like what Feature was doing in Star Trek, the motion picture. With illusion, they can make your crew work the wrong controls or push any button it takes to destroy your ship. They're they're asleep and the door slides open and the keeper reaches in to grab the phasers because he dropped them on the floor. Mm. And then Pike, you know, wasn't really sleeping. So he grabs him, puts him in a stranglehold. And that's where he holds the phaser up to the Telosian's head. Then he holds the phaser, points it to the glass wall, fires it, holds it back to his head and says, I'm willing to bet you've created an illusion. This laser is empty. I think it just blasted a hole in that window and you're keeping us from seeing it. You want me to test my theory out on your head? And then the illusion gives way. And he did, in fact, shoot a hole through that glass wall that those bars, so to speak, and they get out of there and they make their way to the surface of Talos Four. You are now on the surface where we wished you to be. With the female of your choice, you will now begin carefully guided lives. Right here, start procreating on the you, surface of Talos Four. You and Adam and Eve and Eve Two and Eve Three are gonna be, build your civilization. Go ahead. Yeah, right. Go, go for it. And uh, n- number one, you know, has her phaser, but she starts. She sets it to overload wrong to create a whole race of humans to live as slaves what i love because i i agree with you i actually think number one is my favorite major barrett performance mm. in all of star trek i agree but, you know yes there's some good nurse chapel moments definitely some good ones y- you know luoxana troy i'm is hit or fine. miss there, she's there, fine there, there's some episodes i really like her in there's some of those that are not my favorite next generation episodes I love this character and the fact that she is the one that saves the day. She's the one who says it's better. We're all going to die. She pulls the, the Kirk self-destruct the ship move. Right. From you know? your last battlefield. Yeah. 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 So kids zero, zero, zero destruct zero. Listen, that was a ball. He didn't order her to do it. She no. did it on her own. 
that was a strong character by any measure and just happened to be a woman. No, I, I think I, I it's a really a shame that we, you know, I like where Star Trek went. Yeah, I love Star Trek. It would have it would have been very interesting to see number one as a character make it through the series. Uh, that especially with Major Planger. If you all think it's this important, then I can't go either. Which I think is a great character moment. And then the other the other two Telosians that we'd seen come to the surface and tell the keeper the customs and history of your race show a unique hatred of captivity, even. When it's pleasant and benevolent, you prefer death. This makes you too violent and dangerous a species for our needs. I love, they're basically saying, you guys are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are nuts, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you're more trouble than it's worth. <laughs> yeah. You're free to go. Then it's like, Vina, Vina, come with us. I can't. I can't go with you. And then we see this really well done, even by today's standards, time-lapse photography of Vina change from this beautiful young woman to an older piece together shell of a, of a human being uh, repaired by people who have no idea what, what, a, what a human being even looks like. And we see Vina for who she really is. And we see why she has to stay and why she chooses to stay on Talos for so she can live out her life completely uninhibited by her physical ailments. You see why I can't go with you. And Pike gets it. Like he, like he gets it. It was necessary to convince you her desire to stay is an honest one. There's empathy. Like for the first time, for the first time in this episode, you see that the Telosians are not one dimensional that look, she, she's, she really does want to stay here. We're, we're giving her a good life, and it's a life that she wants to live. You'll give her back her illusion of beauty. And more. Not only do they give her back the, the beauty, but they give her her own version of Pike. She'll be able to live her own fantasy with this man that she never had. And Vina, one of the things that she says earlier is that they picked Pike because she he represents what her fantasy of a man would be. So, so... A couple of things about this scene. One is, and maybe you can correct me, in the menagerie, I always had the sense that Vina was like a baby in the crash landing that was raised by the... So it's always that she was an adult and she just was put back together. I don't know hey, where I yeah. got that in my head. Number one, when they're in the... When they're all the three, the four, the five no, of them, I know. actually. You says, know, she says, hey, there, was a, there was a Vina on that on that expedition, but she's wrong. as a grown woman. Yeah, so, but but that line is definitely not in the menagerie. That's that why is in I, the menagerie. It that is? is in the, yes, it, oh, is, at, it okay. is definitely in the menagerie. Okay. Uh, but in the menagerie, when when they're watching the briefing, from the briefing room, and Pike says, you will give her back our illusion of beauty, and the keeper says, and more, you know, they cut to Vina and she's beautiful again. Like we just gave her more beauty. But in the cage, when the when the keeper says right. and more, I mean, we'll give her more than just good looks. We'll give her a whole version of you that will stay with her forever for her dying days. Yeah, we'll talk about it when we get to the menagerie. But I think that they just pulled an earlier shot of Vina yeah, to be did. the last shot there. Here's the other thing. We just had a whole episode, which was basically... It's better to be free and struggle 
than to be in captivity, even if it's perfect. Right. And then, and this is, again, it's 1964, is that they basically say, unless you're Vina, in which case, you know, better stay with these people that have literally been torturing you, you know, <laughs> where there's no other real humans. Yeah, go ahead. And that's, so it's a little bit weird, but I understand that, that why that is the decision. It, I, I never bumped on it before, but watching it this last time I went, oh, you know, she could go with you. The Enterprise is a pretty cool place. What's happened to Vina? Isn't she coming with us? No. No, and I agreed with her reasons. And then they're back on the bridge, and uh, Yeoman Colt is clearly embarrassed. And this is not in the menagerie, so we only see it in the cage because of all the humiliation. What's been exposed, yeah. Yeah, she's been exposed. So now the cat's out of the bag. Sir, I was wondering, just curious... Who would have been Eve? Yeoman. Pike uh, sits back in his chair and engage. Engage. And that's it. Engage. Engage. So, so that was the end of the cage. And everyone knows the, the rest of the story with the cage that NBC thought it was too cerebral, but they didn't, they didn't pass completely. They did an unprecedented move not just in the 60s, but in the 21st century, they said, let's see another pilot. Go back to the drawing board. But, you know, like, let's not make it so cerebral. Give us more action. We want an action adventure. That's what we want. Now, uh, we'll get into more of this when we get into Where No Man Has Gone Before, but there were a lot of changes in casting. Leonard Nimoy was the only one to stick around in that character. Of course, Majel Barrett would be back in another character. And... What became of Jeffrey Hunter? It sounds like he had mixed feelings about being on this show. (laughs) (laughs) He did not want to do science fiction. He thought it was uh, kind of beneath him. When it came time for them to do another pilot, uh, by that time, uh, you know, Jeffrey Hunter was being a little more demanding uh, about the kind of uh, ways he would be shot in principle, photography, he would all be, be shot from one side. He started making demands that would have made it very, very difficult for them to produce an already difficult show to produce on a weekly basis. And I got to tell you, as much as I admire and appreciate Jeffrey Hunter's performance in The Cage, I am glad that yeah. he dropped out <laughs> because, boy, did they get the right guy to be the captain. I mean, I don't think he did anything wrong. I, have, I don't see any flaws in his performance. I think he did a perfectly good job with the material he was giving. He's charismatic. He's good looking. And he ain't Bill Shatner. No, That's he just... ain't Bill Shatner. But here's the th- interesting thing. When you look at Jeffrey Hunter's performance, Jeffrey Hunter's Captain Pike is more like Chris Pine's Captain Kirk in Star Trek Beyond. Hmm. Whereas Anson Mount as Captain Pike in Star Trek Discovery is more like William Shatner's Captain yes. in the original series. It's very, very interesting. How I think that's totally true. Yeah. Parallels there. So he went and did some spaghetti Westerns. His career after he shot the Star Trek pilot was on a downward slope. From what I understand, he was a heavy drinker and he had a stroke and then he had another stroke. And they fell from that second, from that, uh, that other stroke. And the complications from the stroke and the fall are what killed him on, uh, I believe he died on, let's see, it was. May 26, 69. 
May, yeah, May 1969. He was 42 years old. He was 40, he's 10 years younger than I am right now. Wow. Yep. Uh, but what if he had done Star Trek? What if he was doing a weekly series, giving him steady employment? Well, May of 1969, Star Trek was still airing the rest of its third season. If he was, if he had done Star Trek, maybe he would have taken steps with his health that he would not have been in, in failing health. He might not have had a stroke. He might not have fallen. He might not have died. Wow. But if he was doing a weekly series for three straight years, who's to say whether or not he would have died in 1969? Wow. That's... Interesting. Uh, what's your take overall on Captain Christopher Pike? My take is that the problems are in the writing. It's not, and it's not that it's bad writing. It's that it's not a, they don't create a guy that we go, I want to go off on adventures with this guy. Mm -hmm. They can't create a guy that's more introspective, that's more complicated, that has more mixed feelings about things, and that doesn't launch the show. And this is the thing that's so interesting to me is Star Trek gets this to do this thing that no show's ever gotten to do, which is they get a do over. Because what we're going to see, I think there's a whole bunch of amazing ideas in the cage that don't actually go into the show. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff where you see and you go, oh, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't work, you know, and they get to look at that and then think about it and then do it again. By the way, I, I don't even know if that's even happened before where where you had a do over. I mean, it, it, Star Trek could have started and finished right then and there. So, Scott, do you have any final thoughts on the first pilot of Star Trek, The Cage? Well, you know what? As we close out our first episode of Enterprise Incidents, looking at The Cage, I think it served its purpose. It got, it got us far enough so that they could go back to the drawing board and make it a whole lot better with casting, with finding the right moving parts to make a well-oiled machine. The Star Trek that we got and the Star Trek that improved over those years, especially after Gene Kuhn came on as a producer, that was the show that I really loved. And I like the cage. I like Captain Pike and the crew of the Enterprise. I admire and appreciate the cage. Uh, I looking at if that's the show that this would have become, I probably still would have liked it. I probably still would have loved it, but I just feel like, it served its purpose. It was a it was a happy accident that that show didn't quite sell. It was a blessing in disguise that they got to go back to the drawing board, that Desilu Studios, that Lucille Ball, that the executive in charge of production, Herbert F. Salo, got to go back and okay, let's you want action, we'll give you action. And Jeffrey Hunter didn't want to do the series. That's okay boy, are we going to give you a captain to remember? So I, my, my final thoughts are in two parts. And the first part is just what you said. And, and it's that the cage is a good episode of television for 1964. It's a very interesting episode of television, but it, there's no magic. Mm. The magic happens with Shatner and with the new cast and, and the, and redefining who Spock is and you just see things click. And I'm super excited to get there, but 
I want to talk just for a moment about this weird TV show, this little one hour movie that's not really exactly Star Trek. And this is what I was thinking about is that the cage as a story is a twist on the garden of Eden and Mm -hmm. Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. And yet the story of the garden of Eden is that God creates this perfect place. And by their sin, that, that Eve eats from the apple, tempted by the serpent, and by that sin, they gain knowledge, and they leave and go into the hard world, and that's bad. This is like the opposite story. We're in the hard world, and then we go into this world where we can have everything that we want, and there is Eve, and Eve, rather than the person that has the knowledge of the outside world and makes us go out, is the person trying to keep us in. Mm-hmm. And that the serpent, the evilness, is actually staying in paradise. That paradise is a bad place to be. And the good place to be is out in the world where things are hard. And I think, and so, so, and this is where I think about the cage is it's a, a episode of television that I don't think is magic, that I would not love this series, but I really, really admire it. Because I think it's dealing, first of all, it has so many ideas that we discussed that we love later on in Star Trek. But I also think that it's dealing with things that nobody else in 1964 on television would even consider dealing with. I mean, it is so daring. We've already talked about some of the sexual issues, but the philosophical issues and aliens and a woman is the first in command, second in command and all of this stuff where you're like, wow, Gene Roddenberry and I will say Lucille Ball. Being, and, and NBC being willing to go on this journey, say, yeah, make that and and put that much money into it. That's pretty amazing. It, it is amazing, Steve, because, you know, Star Trek is at its best when it's when it's challenging, when it's philosophical, when it's uh, when it's uh, aspirational. I like a good action adventure episode of Star Trek like Doomsday Machine or uh, Balance of Terror or Day of the Dove. I love those episodes. But I love the episodes that are provocative, that make you think, that challenge you, that that really, really uh, open your mind and 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 make you think. And well, wait a minute, why did we keep going back to this theme where we're given this side of paradise, but we're not going to, we don't, des- we don't, we're not meant to stay in paradise. But McCoy even says, you know, that's a well, yeah, it looks like we're driven out of paradise again. He goes, no, no, we were. Kirk says, we were meant to claw our way, you know, that's how you grow. If you stop, if you stop living, if you stop challenging yourself, then you stop living. If you just kind of coast along and take the easy way out, you're not going to grow as a person. You're not going to grow as a society. And for this pilot, for this episode, the, the, the cage to do all of those things is, is bold, no pun intended. Uh, talk about a show that boldly went, uh, a pilot that boldly went, and the rest of the series would keep going further. Okay. I, I know we've done a ridiculously long episode already, and so you have a sense of where we're trying to go with the show. But Scott, I have to tell you, I literally just had a full Star Trek epiphany, to, and you just gave it to me. What is Okay, it? here it is. So I have, we and I, you and I have talked about this off the mic, is that I think one of the big mistakes in Star Trek was something that Roddenberry followed more and more as the show went on, which is the idea that we've created the perfect civilization, Mm. is that the Federation, we don't have greed, we don't have drug addiction, we don't have all these things, and you would get these horrible monologues from Wesley Crusher about how awesome we are, and I think that's not where Star Trek's good. I think Star Trek's good when there is one that's human. 
and there are conflicts and all this stuff. And it just occurred to me that what happened is that Gene Roddenberry fell into the exact trap he was warning against throughout most of the original series, is that he is saying that the Federation is this place where they figured everything out. No. That no, it's no. this... No, uh, that, but that's the biggest misconception about Star Trek is about the perfection of, of society. The perfection. When Star Trek is bad, that is what they're doing, in my opinion. Okay, well, well, in the first two seasons of The Next Generation, I think that's what happened. They took away the conflict. Yeah. But in the original series, the conflict was very, very much exactly. there. Exactly. How many times did you see, especially Kirk and McCoy, go at it? Okay, yes. Corbomite maneuver, the, uh, you know, in uh, – uh, uh, a private little war. An obsession uh, in all uh, sorts obsession. of Obsession, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of drama there. And the fact is, Star Trek is not about the perfection of humanity. Star Trek, at its best, and we saw it at its best in the original series, is about the striving. Exactly. The striving for perfection. We are never going to get there because guess what? If it took all of humanity for us to get to this point, in the 60s or in 2021, and we are by no means perfect, then we're not going to get there in just 250 years either. But what I love about Star Trek, what I love about the original series is that we're trying. We're trying to be better. We're still learning. We're still learning. We're still learning from our mistakes. There's that great line in Metamorphosis where McCoy says to Kirk, you, you know, you're a soldier so often that you forget that you're also a diplomat. Why don't you try a carrot instead of a stick? This is the beauty of Star Trek is that we are, we're, we're better off in the 23rd century than we are in the 20th and 21st century, but we're still learning. We're still, and we're not going to learn if we're just going to just uh, live, live a, an easy life of illusion. And that is why Star Trek has constantly come back to the theme that we are not meant for paradise. We are always have to be, have to be fighting and learning and calling our way, scratching our way out so we can continue to grow and, and, and strive to be better. And this is why I am so excited to be doing this show with you. This, yes. is, the, this is the conversation I am looking forward to have for, you know, the next couple of years, however long this is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Scott, I just can't wait. Steve, this is, we, we are off and running on Enterprise Incidents and, this means, do you realize that since we were going into production order on Enterprise Incidents, do you realize what the next episode of Enterprise Incidents is going to cover, my friend? I, I think you and I might be going where no man has gone before. Well, we're certainly going where no man's has gone before. <laughs> and we are also going where no man has gone before. And boy, boy, do we have a lot to talk about. And for everyone listening First of all, I want to thank you so much for listening to our very first episode of Enterprise Incidents. Please do us a huge favor. Please share this episode with other Star Trek fans, uh, even just with casual Star Trek fans, especially fans of the original series. This has been an incredible conversation, but I can't wait to get to the real James T. Kirk. And I know you can't wait too. So if you want to subscribe to the show, you can do it on iTunes, on YouTube, Spotify, Google Play. And the most important thing, please leave those reviews on iTunes. They're extremely important. And if you want to follow the show, you can visit us on our Facebook page. Just search for the Enterprise Incidents on Instagram, Enterprise Incidents, and on Twitter, Enter Incidents. Scott, how would they reach you? 
Okay, you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at MovieMance. You can check out my YouTube page with all my movie content, which is just Scott Mance. And Steve, where can people find you outside of Enterprise Incidents and outside of the Cinephiles? On, on Twitter at SR Morris and on Instagram at SR Morris Ones. And if they did want to check out the Cinephiles, they could actually listen to you talk about things other than Star Trek, like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 2001 Airplane, and The Beatles' Hard Day's Night. Well, very, very excited because now that we have gotten the cage out of the way, now let's get down to the nitty gritty. Let's get down to the first episode that sees in the captain's chair, William Shatner as Captain James R. Kirk in Where No Man Has Gone Before. Not just a great pilot, but one of the greatest Star Trek episodes of them all. That is next time on Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. So until then, keep going boldly. Boldly.